In a world torn by revolution, one man's relentless ambition will help forge a nation. This winter, embark on an epic 12-part journey through the tumultuous times of America's founding in our new series, Hamilton at War. A short distance away from the guns, a group of Hessians clawed their way through the blinding white smoke, unaware of Hamilton's cannons pointed directly at them. Hamilton gave the deadly order, give fire! Bodies disappeared in a gray cloud that turned red. Hamilton at War is not just an audio series, it's an immersive journey through time. The revolutionary series begins November 1st on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to D-Day in 90 Minutes, our 15-part weekly podcast series that delves deep into the historic Allied invasion that turned the tide of World War II. I'm Robert Child, and I hope you enjoy this latest installment. D-Day in 90 Minutes, written by William Bradle, Robert Child, narrated by Travis. The Invasion, Omaha Beach. That's when I said bullshit. If I'm going to die to hell with it, I'm not going to die here. Private Raymond Howell. One German was convinced of the invasion target very early on the morning of June 6, 1944. Major Werner Pluskut commanded four batteries that covered Omaha Beach. The batteries were manned by newly arrived troops from the Russian front, the battle-hardened 352nd Division. The Allies had only recently become aware of the 352nd at Omaha. Awakened by the sound of airplanes and anti-aircraft fire, Pluskut went to the bunkers and called headquarters. He was told to relax. Between calls, he swept his artillery glasses over the horizon out to sea. Nothing. He was ready to return to headquarters, but took one more look. The mist cleared, moonlight lightened the sky. Pluskut saw shapes, then ships. He called headquarters and yelled there were 10,000 ships on the horizon. His commanding officer said no nation had 10,000 ships. Pluskut invited him to come and take a look. First, his CO asked, where are they headed? Pluskut replied, right for me. The Allied naval bombardment opened up on the beaches with the British first at 5.30 a.m. and the Americans at 5.50 a.m. Five battleships, two British and three American, fired 14, 12, and 5-inch guns. The oldest battleship, USS Texas, was launched in 1912. The battleships fired from five miles off the coast, while much smaller destroyers stood in as close as a mile off the coast. Off Omaha, they pounded Pluskut's bunkers and the bunkers at Pointe du Hoch. On Omaha, the ships fired at eight concrete bunkers holding batteries, 35 pillboxes with artillery, 18 anti-tank guns, six mortar pits, 35 rocket launchers, and 85 machine gun nests. The bombardment shook the defenses, but did not destroy them. One soldier, examining a bunker after the battle, noted, the Germans really know how to build these things. Over the invasion scene came the sound of 9,000 Allied planes, including B-17s, B-24s, B-26s, and Lancaster bombers and Thunderbolt, Mustang, Spitfire, and Hurricane fighters. The bombers were supposed to hit the German concrete fortifications, 
and destroy them at best, or at least litter the beaches with shell holes for the infantry to dive into foxholes for cover. They did neither. Hindered by cloud formations and afraid to hit their own men, most of the bombs fell three miles inland. The naval and air bombardment did not accomplish as much as they had planned. The men in the landing craft cheered and couldn't believe anything could survive such fire. But the Germans did survive for the most part, and the infantry was on its own. Omaha Beach has cliffs on both sides, is shaped in a crescent, and in 1944 had a seawall of shale and wood. This is where the first attackers wanted to get to his shelter. The seawall is gone today, destroyed by heavy machinery, to open up the route off the beach. So the 1944 Omaha Beach and today's Omaha look greatly different. Up off the beach and over the seawall, the land still goes uphill fairly steeply, crisscrossed with small canyons and ruts that made progress slow. There were paths and dirt roads up off the beach, all laden with minefields. The natural ambush qualities of Omaha were all well known to the Allied planners. They looked for ways to avoid the area, but without Omaha, the gap between the British beaches and Utah Beach would be too great and too open to splitting the two forces apart each then to be annihilated. Omaha would have to be taken. The job fell to the U.S. 1st Infantry Division, nicknamed the Big Red One, and the U.S. 29th Division, the Blue and Gray, because it was formed in World War I from almost equal numbers of Southerners and Northerners, 40,000 men and 3,500 motorized vehicles were supposed to land on Omaha that day. Going in first on the right, or west side, was the 116th Regiment of the 29th Division, and on the left was the 16th Regiment of the 1st. That was the plan. It didn't work out that way. High winds and tides started pushing the flat-bottomed Higgins boats and other vessels around as soon as they loaded and headed for the beach. The men started the trek by climbing down rope nets to the crafts or being lowered in boats from davits. Like most travelers, they took more than they could carry. Besides rifles, shovels, knives, first aid kits, gas masks, canteens, and rations, every soldier had extra ammunition, grenades, and satchel charges. And the drug of choice in World War II, cigarettes wrapped in waxed paper. Estimates of total weight ranged from 250 to 300 pounds. With all that, the men had to climb down the nets, time their jumps, and hopefully land in the boat. Some didn't. The first wave of 3,000 men started for the beach at 5.30 a.m. These were infantry and demolition engineers trained to blow the obstacles and mark landing lanes. The timetable was by the minute, with some tasks to be done in one or two minutes, with the next waves coming in six-minute intervals starting at 7 o'clock a.m. The elements and the Germans upset the timetable. The Higgins boats, loaded with 30 men each, headed for the beach, silent for now. They got closer, and it was still quiet with some men thinking the landing might not even be opposed. The men were tired after being cooped up in the transports, and now as the blunt nose of the craft smashed into the waves, they became seasick and wet, as spray broke over the front and sides. The boats were so packed there was no room to move, and the men became sick over each other and themselves. Some boats took so much water they sank, Seeing this, men started bailing out their boats with their helmets, and officers ordered the boats lightened by jettisoning precious cargo overboard, 
One soldier summed it up saying, that guy Higgins ain't got nothing to be proud of about inventing this goddamned boat. Some of the soldiers in the sinking boats would drown, weighed down by their loads and not inflating their life vests. If a man could get to his May West, he would most likely come to the surface as the compressed air shot him upwards. The inventor, Andrew Toti, invented the device because he built a boat in his youth and his mother was worried because he couldn't swim. To placate her, he invented the May West and sold the design to the U.S. government for $1,600 in 1936. Mr. Toti might not be the real inventor, because the son of inventor Peter Marcus claimed his father invented the device. Regardless, the May West saved a lot of lives on D-Day. As landing craft approached the beach, they started to hit mines. Men were thrown hundreds of feet in the air. An LCT dropped its ramp right on a sea mine blowing a Sherman DD tank a hundred feet in the air. Men in the water implored passing boats to pick them up, but the coxswains had orders not to stop, and they hardened their hearts to the cries. From the lesson learned at Slapton Sands, there were rescue vessels especially assigned to pick up survivors, although many men spent hours in the water. Besides hitting mines, most of the D.D. Sherman tanks, the artillery support for the men when they hit the beach, sank. Sixty-four floating tanks were to be launched two miles out to sea and swim in. Of the 32 allotted to the 1st Division, 29 were launched and 27 sunk as the running sea and waves ripped up the canvas airbags and flooded the engines. Two made it, and two were launched closer in, but the infantry had no significant armor support at the beginning of D-Day. The naval bombardment stopped as the boats neared the beach. At 500 yards, there was no firing coming from the Germans. At 400 yards, the Germans opened up with machine guns, mortars, and artillery. The fire came mostly downward from the heights on each side of the beach, catching the boats and disembarking men in their crossfire, just as Rommel had planned. The ping of machine gun bullets hitting the front of the Higgins boats ended as ramps dropped. The bullets now hit the men trying to get out of the boat into the water and up the beach. Some boats were so stacked up in the front from so many men killed that the survivors went over the side. Some boats grounded, and the men jumped into six feet of water going straight to the bottom, discarding guns and supplies, pulling on their life vests. Tragedy would strike the town of Bedford, Virginia, when Company A of the 29th hit the beach. Thirty men from the town of 3,000 were in Company A which went in virtually alone when their sister companies, G and F, drifted a half-mile east of the landing zone. The Germans concentrated all their firepower on Company A, and 19 of the 30 Bedford boys were killed. Four more Bedford boys would be killed in later fighting. As a percentage, Bedford suffered the highest casualty rate of any U.S. municipality. The armed forces had disallowed brothers to serve in the same unit after the five Sullivan brothers were killed in the sinking of the USS Juno in 1942 off Guadalcanal. After the Bedford incident, the armed services disallowed units based on geography. The National D-Day Memorial is in Bedford, Virginia. Adding to the high season surf was smoke as the shelling set the grass on fire. Boats couldn't locate their targets, veered off and then back, finally just grounding and unloading. The boats withdrew by dropping anchors as they went in, dropping their loads, reversing the winches, and dragging themselves back to the anchors and out to sea. One factor that did not hinder the invasion was the Luftwaffe. 
though they did make a brief appearance. Near Lille, Wing Commander Josef Pips Preler was put on alert to scramble his 124-plane squadron of Fokovov 190 fighters. Preler could only scramble two as the rest had been pulled out of the sector the previous afternoon. Preler was livid, but went on the attack, saying to his wingman, Sergeant Heinz Vudarzik, Now listen, there are just the two of us. We can't afford to break up. For God's sake, do exactly as I do. Fly behind me and follow my every move. He paused. We're going in alone, and I don't think we're coming back. They took off at 9 a.m., coming in at Sword Beach at 400 feet high, then on to Juneau, Gold, Utah, and Omaha, strafing as they went. They went through the fire, ranging from handheld machine guns to the guns of the battleships without a scratch. Preeler managed a brewery after the war, marrying the owner's daughter. There was an Allied plane shot down on D-Day, a victim of friendly fire. A P-51 came low over the beach and was shot down by the 474th Anti-Aircraft Battery. The American pilot parachuted safely down on the beach. No action was taken against the battery as they had orders to fire at anything below 1,000 feet. The demolition engineers were brought in, but not at their targets and off schedule. They went to work on the first available obstacles. Instead of blowing up 16 paths, they managed only six. They were lucky to get those done. Men hid behind the obstacles, and the Germans targeted the engineers, often waiting until six or seven obstacles had been wired, then killing the engineer before he had the chance to blow the charge. Some boats cleared paths by hitting the obstacles, setting off the teller mines. The boats were destroyed and the men killed, but a path was open. Casualties among the engineers was 50%. At 7 o'clock a.m., the second wave landed. The water in the beaches started looking like a junkyard with floating radios, ammo boxes, entrenching tools, and reels of wire. Blasted landing craft were everywhere, and dead men floated in the water. Through the mess came the third wave, then the fourth. It was looking good to the Germans. An officer radioed back to headquarters a play-by-play, -play, saying, At the water's edge, the enemy is in search of cover behind the coastal zone obstacles. A great many motor vehicles, among them ten tanks, stand burning on the beach. The obstacle demolition squads have given up their activities. Debarkation from the landing boats has ceased. The boats keep further out to sea. The fire of our battle positions and artillery is well placed and has inflicted considerable casualties on the enemy. A great many wounded and dead lie on the beach. When offered reinforcements, the 352nd commander radioed back, we don't need them. The commander was wrong. On the beach, the men started moving forward for the perceived shelter of the seawall and getting across the beach to the shingle became an obsession. And this is where the discipline and training took over, said Sergeant Robert Slaughter of the 116th Regiment. Slaughter reached the seawall, lit a cigarette, and cleaned his rifle. But the seawall was a false shelter. The Germans had it zeroed in with mortars and artillery, and the barrage began. Slaughter's colonel, Colonel Charles Cannum, wounded and waving a Colt 45, went nuts, yelling at his officers to... Get the hell off this beach and go kill some Germans. To a cowering officer, he shouted, Get your ass out of there and show some leadership. Get these men off their dead asses and over the wall. And they did. To stay was to die. Men started heading up the hill. Officers showed leadership with one lieutenant running up to a bunker, tossing a grenade and taking six prisoners. 
The enlisted men figured if he could do it, they could do it. Private Raymond Howell, an engineer, summed it up when hit by shrapnel. He recalled, That's when I said bullshit. If I'm going to die to hell with it, I'm not going to die here. The next bunch of guys that go over that goddamn wall, I'm going with them. If I'm going to be infantry, I'm going to be infantry. So I don't know who else. I guess all of us decided, well, it's time to start. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the series. Be sure to be with us for our next installment. I'm Robert Child, and this has been D-Day in 90 Minutes, only on Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.